0: This great women of business podcast is sponsored by Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes SendPro C200 has you covered. The C200 lets you send mail and packages right from your desk. Start saving today and get a free 60-day
1: trial of a Pitney Bowes C200. Visit us online at pb.com slash women. That's pb.com slash women. Terms apply. See site for details.
0: A lot of work goes into the seemingly innocent business of the toy industry. Before the production line starts, an idea
1: is needed to fuel it. And some ideas prove more profitable than others.
0: One of the most profitable of all time is the Barbie doll. These globally recognizable dolls are a $1.9 billion industry of their own at this point. And it all flows back to the major toy company, Mattel. According to Fortune magazine, in a 2003 report, a new Barbie doll is sold approximately every three seconds. There's proof in those numbers.
1: Barbie was an exceedingly good idea in the risky toy business. But it's one that nearly didn't exist. Only the willpower and belief of Mattel's co-founder and leading visionary, Ruth Handler, made the idea into a reality, and the reality into a fortune.
0: The key factor that enabled Ruth Handler's success was her keen perception of an industry in need of disruption. It didn't matter that it meant becoming the only female toy executive around. It didn't matter that it would nearly cost her everything. Ruth Handler
1: was driven to make a mark, and if the world tried to get in her way, well, she'd just have to change it.
0: Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just
1: tell you about women who change the face of business. We tell you how
0: they change the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our
1: 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and
0: on Twitter, at Parcast Network. Now, let's return to the history of Ruth Handler, the founder of Mattel and the brains behind the Barbie legend. ruth
1: didn't enter the toy industry because she loved toys her husband Elliot was the creative minded partner in the relationship while ruth was all business a truly modern spin on gender dynamics let alone business partnerships ruth loved to throw herself into productive work and cherished seeing the results of her decisions pay off in big ways this made her a natural at entrepreneurial thinking The business principle that guided her throughout her unlikely and adventurous career
0: was always disruption is key. She would build to this overarching principle over time as she developed smaller and more focused business principles in her everyday life. We'll point these out as we move through her history, but Ruth's primary tools were always her gut feelings and her heart. In a world where expectations
1: and ambitions were aligned against women, what motivated Ruth Handler to greatness? To learn this, we have to go back to 1916. Ruth Mosko was born in Denver, Colorado on November 4, 1916. She was the youngest of the 10 children of Jewish immigrants, Jacob and Ida Mosko.
0: There was trouble from the start. Ida fell ill six months after Ruth's birth. The eldest Moscow daughter, Sarah, was in her early twenties, had recently married Louis Greenwald, and decided to take Ruth in to help her mother. However, when
1: Ida returned from the hospital, Ruth remained with Sarah. A formal contract was never arranged, but from six months on, Ruth was raised as if she were Sarah and
0: Louis's child. Ruth was never close to her birth parents. They spoke Yiddish, which Ruth never learned. She always denied that this had an effect on her psychological upbringing. Though she skirts the subject in her own autobiography, Ruth does admit the following, quote, I'm extraordinarily uncomfortable with dependency on anyone. I guess I've had this overwhelming compulsion to prove myself all my life. End quote. Whatever the inner emotional state was, Ruth definitely
1: loved to put work first. Sarah and Louie owned a pharmacy in town, and by 1926, when she was only 10 years old, Ruth was already begging for a job. They gave her small tasks, but
0: she wanted to be worthy of actually making money. Ruth recalled that, quote, Sarah seemed to thrive on working, so I grew up with the idea that a woman, a mother with a job, was neither strange nor unnatural." Quote. This was an important development in her
1: young life, and a key to her later status as a major disruptor. She was never crippled with false ideas about her own worth. Sarah was
0: a powerful female mentor. In 1932, when Ruth was 16, she met Isidore Elliot Handler. He was a local lower-class Jewish kid. They first met at a nickel dance, where a nickel had to be paid in order to get onto the floor. When Elliot laid eyes on Ruth, he dug up every nickel he could find. He would later say, quote, We fell in love at a nickel a dance, end quote. From that point on, the two were inseparable, no
1: matter how much Sarah persuaded Ruth to focus on her education and future away from the artsy and absent-minded Elliot. To distract her with work, they finally relented and allowed her greater agency in their newest business venture, the Home Public Market, a large collective
0: space for various grocery outlets. Sarah ran the lunch counter there, And in 1934, when she went away on a rare vacation, Ruth took over the job and kept helping Sarah even after she returned. But just one job wasn't enough. She also began working shifts after school at her brother Joe's law office as a clerk. In Ruth's own words, quote, Work was what made me grow up, what made me what I am, end quote. So, here it is. Earlier than
1: most, Ruth Handler's earliest business principle was now firmly in place. The path to disruption began here. Every skill she would learn, she would learn by doing. She wanted to jump into action as soon as she could, and her drive made her a perfect business pupil. She observed everything she
0: could and replicated it. After graduation in 1934, the 18-year-old Ruth decided to attend the University of Denver with a plan to become a lawyer. But two years later, through her roommate at school, Ruth was connected to an open room in sunny Los Angeles. She learned this new roommate worked at Paramount. So, Ruth walked into Paramount for a tour and walked out with a job as a typist for $25 a week. Elliot, struggling in art school back in Colorado, decided to move to California and join Ruth. They spent the year
1: between 1936 and 1937 working their small-time jobs, with Elliot working at a lighting fixture company and exploring the city. Ruth loved Paramount, but she was amazed at the excesses of Hollywood business. To quote from Robin Gerber's biographical account, Barbie and Ruth, Ruth was appalled at the waste of money and poor management
0: on display at the studio. Although she wasn't yet in business, this became Ruth's foundational second principle. Waste was clearly the enemy of productivity. She watched too many great projects and great artists flounder around her on the lot. If she was in charge, Ruth thought, things would be a lot different. By 1938, Ruth and Elliot, both 22,
1: were finally wed, and they decided to live full-time in Los Angeles. Soon enough, destiny came calling— Through his work at the Lighting Fixture Company, Elliot had come to learn of a new material called plexiglass, invented in 1936 by the Army Air Force for cockpit windows. The malleable material inspired him, and he began designing
0: household items and decorations. Ruth thought his ideas were genius. She proposed that she could sell anything he made. Here we see evidence of the unique role that Ruth took in this marriage. She would later write that quote, Sarah was my role model. She was the responsible person in her marriage. She held things together, made the decisions, took care of the money. I guess that's why I never thought it strange for a woman to take the business lead in a marriage, end quote. From here
1: on out, Elliot would be the creative lead and Ruth the business strategist. The couple bought plexiglass molding equipment from Sears via installment payments. They rented out a former laundry house at the end of 1938, and Elliot got to work alongside his co-worker and friend Harold Matt Mattson. Through Ruth's direction,
0: Elliot Handler Plastics was born. They produced picture frames and ashtrays without trouble, and Ruth started selling to shops around the city. She attempted to make a wholesale deal with plexiglass distributor Rome & Haas, but they didn't think Handler Plastics was big enough. That said, the company representative was blown away by Ruth and put her in touch with their contact, Douglas Aircraft. Handler Plastics was
1: thrown into the ring to design a commemorative clock with a small aircraft design for Douglas. Elliott's design won. In 1940, the Douglas profits bought them a larger space. Elliott began designing plexiglass costume jewelry as well. This was their first move into the
0: novelty item space. 1940 was also a personal turning point. Ruth became pregnant. Elliot was forced to partner with entrepreneur Zachary Zemby, who had already made a fortune in real jewelry. Ruth wasn't happy. She was sidelined as Handler Plastics became Elzac, named after Zachary and Elliot. Then, in May 1941, she gave birth to her daughter Barbara Joyce. As Ruth spent her hours raising her first child, Elzac grew and grew, making $9,000 in profit in its first year. Today, that would be worth over $150,000. In 1943, Ruth
1: became pregnant again. She was sick of sitting out of the business. It was the beginning of a rocky relationship between Ruth and motherhood. Her son
0: Kenneth Robert was born in March 1944. But Ruth wouldn't be kept out of the business world for much longer. In the late months of 1944, Harold Matt Matson approached Ruth with a proposal. He wanted to use some of Elliot's neglected design ideas and make his own products. Ruth, though, had a different idea. Recently, Ruth noticed that many photography shops were taking off in Los Angeles. She later wrote, quote, For some reason, I knew I could sell picture frames. It seemed so natural to me that I did not hesitate for a moment in informing Matt what he was to make. End quote. Elliot had grown unhappy with long hours at Elzac.
1: Ruth roped him into this new venture, and all three went into business together. However, yet again, only the men's names were
0: used in the new business's name. It was called... Mattel. Ruth claimed the omission of her name didn't bother her. They simply couldn't find a way to fit it in. She later said, quote, "Yes, it was Elliot's designs. Yes, it was Elliot's name. Yes, he was very much a part of it in my mind. But I actually started Mattel, end quote. So there it was. At the
1: end of 1944, through a strange brew of unusual personal history, feminist drive, and a loving partnership with her husband, Ruth Handler started Mattel. She finally saw a way for herself to enter the thriving business of post-war America. She had found the opening. Now it was time for real disruption.
0: And now it's time for a quick break. A business is only as strong as its employees. So every hire matters. Don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will apply. Instead, choose LinkedIn.
1: LinkedIn isn't just the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find talent.
0: People hardly check job boards anymore. At most, it's an occasional thing. But there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally. LinkedIn. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn,
1: and 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry.
0: LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out.
1: Go to linkedin.com slash women and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash women for $50 off. Terms and conditions apply.
0: And here's something else we think you should know about. If you
1: want a loan that rewards your credit, get a credit card consolidation loan
0: from Lightstream. You could get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89% APR with AutoPay. You can choose your funding date as soon as today. Their website is very easy to navigate. Plus there's a really helpful rate table
1: and calculator so you can walk through the process first before applying.
0: Our listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash greatwomen. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash greatwomen.
1: Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information.
0: Now, let's get back to the story. Sounds like that was music to Ruth Handler's
1: ears. But it wasn't a symphony just yet. With Elliot working on the designs and plastics alongside Mattson, Ruth kept spirits
0: up as she built a business plan. If Mattel was to become a true industry disruptor, it needed to do a few things. First of all, it needed to find an industry in need of real disruption. Plastic production wasn't enough. Elliot had a new
1: passion for dollhouse furniture. Ruth thought it would be a perfect fit alongside their other novelty items. In 1945, Mattel made a total of $30,000 in profit on $100,000 in sales. Not bad, but it needed to be better. For 1946, Ruth decided they needed to increase production on novelty items and began making trips to New York City, the toy
0: industry's capital. Ruth saw Mattel's true purpose now, The baby boom was in full swing. Ruth was a participant herself. Toys were going to be bigger than ever, and Mattel needed to be there to fill that need. Interestingly enough, Ruth's status
1: as a mother gave her this perception. Even though she didn't love the role, she was seeing the world through their eyes. Though she might not like it or admit it, the personal was always intertwined with the professional
0: in her life. 1946 was the moment that disruption became the main principle of Ruth's business. Although the toy industry was definitely a solid institution, she could see waste and distraction in the ranks. This was an industry focused on children.
1: In another light, it could be seen as an industry focused on mothers who supplied the children with their needs and wants. Ruth didn't appreciate that women were supposed to solely be in charge of child rearing, but she certainly understood that societal expectation. Ruth would capitalize on her innate knowledge here, knowledge that wealthy male executives
0: simply did not possess. With only five other employees, Mattel pushed full-time into toys. They created fake makeup sets, piggy banks, and Elliot's big idea, the Yooka an imitative ukulele. However, Mattel made a mistake by sending samples of the product around the industry before the annual Toy Fair in New York City. By March 1947, as
1: the Toy Fair began in earnest, The handlers realized that rival developer Knickerbocker Toys were trying to steal the Yucadoodle. They had scraped off the Mattel label on one of the sample ukuleles, as Knickerbocker knew it would be easy enough to replicate on their own. If Knickerbocker pitched it
0: properly, they could replicate and steal Mattel's idea. Ruth wasn't going to let this happen. She knew that Mattel needed to flood the market with their version. But in order to increase production, they needed to cut costs. Ruth didn't want to compromise the quality of the toy
1: itself, so she decided to reduce the amount of materials in the boxes the toys would ship inside. Ruth pitched her new box plan to Eddie Myers, a representative at a smaller packaging company. Although Mattel couldn't pay up
0: front, She promised the toy would deliver big sales. Myers was so inspired by Ruth's passion that he told his company that he would cover the credit if Mattel didn't follow through with sales. Both Ruth and Myers' bet paid off. The yukadoodle went through the roof in sales, and Myers eventually became the president of the box company.
1: Here's business principle three in action. Ruth had a passion, and that translated into her sales style. She made emotional appeals, inspired by her belief in her product line, and when people made the same bet alongside her, she rewarded them with eternal loyalty. Myers was a partner with Mattel for
0: decades to come. Interestingly, gut instincts often go hand-in-hand with business people who are drawn to disruption. Bill Allen, the CEO of Boeing in the 1950s, followed his gut when he pivoted from military development to commercial airlines in the mid-1950s. He risked everything and invested $16 million in a project that would make or break the company, the Boeing Transcontinental 707.
1: Though Mattel only made small versions of airplanes, the gut instinct strategy was the same. By the end of 1947, the Yukadoodle did $28,000 in profit and would sell over 11 million units in the next decade. The toy fair also became a major focus for the company. Ruth now knew it was important to hold onto ideas until a big debut at the fair to keep the competition from nabbing their innovative
0: products. 34-year-old Ruth took the title of executive vice president with Elliot as president. She ran the business, but she did believe in him as a real collaborator. Quote, He was unquestionably the best toy designer in the entire world. I mean that without any reservations. End quote. The Handler
1: family wasn't completely rock-solid, though. Barbara was growing resentful of her mother. She said in later interviews, Oh, how I hated my mother being in business when I was young. Remember, this was a time that women only worked if they absolutely had to work. I used to think my mother was loud and talked like a man. End quote.
0: Barbara and Ruth often fought, while the younger Kenneth retreated into his own headspace, a more creative mind, like his father. All in all, the Handler's lives revolved around Mattel more than it did around their family. But Mattel was in a critical stage, and Ruth needed to
1: make sure they could make the transition into a major force— In 1950, they distanced themselves further from other toy companies that were totally in-house. Instead, Ruth partnered with a varied team of
0: subcontractors to handle material and distribution. Here's business principle four. Focus on your company's strengths. Ruth didn't want people distracted. Mattel was about product innovation and productivity. She didn't want that focus divided amongst too many pieces at this stage. Without knowing it, Ruth was working in step with the
1: theories developed by her contemporary Peter Drucker, a business analyst who developed some of the most influential business philosophies of the modern era.
0: Famously, he wrote, quote, "...the task of leadership is to create an alignment of strengths, making a system's weaknesses irrelevant." In simpler form, Drucker was establishing the idea that it's better to work from the positives of a business model than the deficits. Ruth wanted
1: people to know that Mattel was already a functioning company. They weren't scrambling to catch up. They were just scrambling to prove themselves. Business research has proven again and again that employees who are invested in a company's vision work more happily and productively than those who feel the whip of bureaucracy cracking
0: down on all sides. From this fourth principle naturally followed Ruth's fifth. She wanted to maintain personal relationships with the Mattel team. With their success at the end of the 1940s, their team ballooned from five to hundreds. By 1951, Mattel was recognized as a standout and diverse production house. The Los Angeles Conference on Community
1: Relations commended the company with the following statement, quote, A tour of your plant is like walking through the United Nations. People of different races, various religious faiths, handicapped people, elderly people, all working as a unit. You have set an example that might
0: well be followed by business people everywhere." "Quote," Ruth and Elliot guided their growing team with their sixth business principle, the concept of play value. They wanted everyone to question every idea as follows. How long would a child play with this toy? How much interest does the toy hold? Ruth
1: later wrote, If you develop a basic mechanism or a basic concept, you develop one or two or three items around that concept at the initial introduction. And then, year after year, you add new products around that initial concept, end quote.
0: With the Yooka Doodle, for example, they would lead into more music-oriented toys. Ruth wanted every toy to build off of the last. She wanted the Mattel brand to be known for every toy, not just one. Each success would therefore lead into the next. In 1951 and
1: 1952, the company had its biggest success yet with their music box. It made $7 million in its first year and $2 million more in the next. This led to the construction of a 60,000-square-foot factory and the employment of over 700
0: people. Mattel seemed unstoppable until Ruth's health took a hit in 1955. The 39-year-old had a breast cancer scare. Like most personal problems in her life, Ruth drowned the worries in work.
1: 1955 also offered Mattel a new breakthrough. The network ABC was debuting a new show, The Mickey Mouse Club, Children's television had recently revealed itself to be a real, standalone genre, and it offered an opportunity to expand
0: toy advertisements into a year-round affair. This was risky for the toy companies. Usually, they only advertised before the holiday season. Otherwise, the ads were ignored or went unseen. But ABC thought their new show would draw children viewers all year long. Mattel had a new toy called the burp gun, a toy gun
1: that made popping sounds and would allow kids to role play as cowboys and detectives. Ruth knew the product had visual appeal, but ABC
0: wanted a year commitment of advertising funds. Ruth knew this was a huge risk, but it could also turn Mattel into a giant. She could provide steady employment for her workers. The off-seasons always hit toy companies hard, but maybe Mattel could prove there was no more off-season. Ruth made the bet. Production
1: on the Burp Gun skyrocketed, the ads aired, and then nothing happened. Things looked grim. But then, six weeks passed. Suddenly, the Burp Gun sales exploded like never before. After the holidays, Mattel had sold a million burp guns. The ads continued to air throughout 1956, and the burp gun continued to do huge numbers. The bet paid off big time.
0: While this appears on the surface like another incredibly risky moment of thinking only with her gut instincts, Ruth inherently understood that sometimes risky marketing leaps are the smartest bet to make. In 2001,
1: a struggling Microsoft decided to enter the video game console ring, competing head-to-head with Sony's juggernaut PlayStation franchise. Many in the marketing division didn't even like the name, Xbox, but Bill Gates and his executives stuck by it and then organized a landmark campaign of big press events at electronic conventions for nearly two years. Gates himself was present at these shows. This was a novel strategy. Microsoft never had the need to do press events of this size, especially events headlined by their CEO. The console sold more than a million units in the first few weeks. And the
0: way video game consoles were sold was changed forever. Ruth's disruption in 1955 wasn't so different because the toy business was also forever changed. She had successfully shifted the advertising focus for toys from parents in the holiday season to kids all year. Toys were directly marketed to children now, and they could wear down their parents with pleas. This also fed into the seventh
1: business principle of Handler's life, all revolving around visual marketing. Mattel toys should look better than all the rest. Her newly hired marketing firm, Carson Roberts, had put on show-stopping displays at the toy fair. Ruth enlisted them to develop an animated
0: series called Maddie's Fun Day Funnies for ABC. Mattel was in the cartoon business, and they sponsored other franchises beneath their label, including Casper the Friendly Ghost. This had never been done before. Ruth was at the vanguard of the fusion of marketing and entertainment that would lead to, years later, the titanic success of franchises like Pokemon and Marvel. Ruth wanted Mattel's brand to be
1: ever-present on children's television— She wanted to create a feedback loop of advertising and sales, all funneled directly through the primary target
0: audience of children. On the ground, Ruth followed a similar strategy by placing teams she called retail details in toy stores. These Mattel employees would set up and man Mattel display racks, Not only did they help push sales, but they were able to collect immediate sales data that fed back to Ruth. To quote the woman herself,
1: in the toy business, you live or die with the quality of projection you make. Your lead times are very long, and the commitments you make very early influence how many you make or ship, and whether you get stuck with what
0: you do. By making sure she had accurate sales data and market research, Ruth pushed Mattel to $14 million a year in sales. They were officially a major toy company. But Ruth still sensed an area for improvement. In the
1: 1950s, dolls still weren't a huge industry. They were for girls, and they were mostly baby dolls, encouraging motherhood. But Ruth had
0: noticed that Barbara and her childhood friends were more drawn toward playing with paper dolls. These were cut out from magazines. One-dimensional, they still had more variety than the dolls sold in stores. Over the years, she had observed that Barbara and the kids tended to prefer playing with the adult women paper dolls than the cartoons and babies. Gerber writes, quote,
1: Ruth saw that they were seeing themselves in the role that they imagined for the
0: doll. They were also mimicking adult conversation. Ruth later wrote about her big inspiration, I knew that if we could take this play pattern and three-dimensionalize it, we would have something very special. Elliot wasn't so sure.
1: He didn't think women would buy dolls with breasts for their daughters. He
0: thought big leaders in the toy industry would think the same. But in 1956, the handlers went on a European vacation. In Switzerland, both Ruth and Barbara were drawn to a toy store window, displaying exactly what Ruth had envisioned, a three-dimensional adult female doll with beautiful clothes. This was the Lily doll. Unknown to
1: Ruth at the time, they were based on a risque adult comic and meant to be sold to bachelors and men as a novelty gift. But Ruth was drawn to the
0: realistic molding, and especially the clothing. She enlisted Mattel's hotshot head of research and design, Jack Ryan, and sent him to Japan to seek out a manufacturer that could replicate something like the lily as cheaply as possible. Ryan teamed with toy distributor Koksai Boeki. Together, they used a method called rotational
1: molding, where a powdered form of PVC material, or vinyl, was
0: turned over a heat source to make a more controlled, defined mold. As the plastics were developing in Japan, Ruth hired a Hollywood makeup artist to design her dream doll's face. By 1957, she had also enlisted a fashion designer named Charlotte Butenbach-Johnson to create clothing for the doll. Clothing was key.
1: Interchangeable outfits could mean huge profits. Ruth told Charlotte, quote, I want American clothes, and I want play situations which teenage girls would go through. Prom dresses, wedding dresses, career office dresses. I want her to be able to dress up, and I want slacks.
0: Somewhere around 1958, Ruth struck upon what she thought was the perfect name for this doll, Barbie. It was, of course, a variant of her own daughter Barbara's name, much to her daughter's chagrin. When I went out to work, she kept asking, why can't I be like everybody else's mother?
1: And she hated when people pointed her out as the Barbie. Despite her own passion, Ruth knew she needed to address Elliot's fears about the feasibility of selling a doll like this. Modern-day Mattel company history addresses this, heard here through a PR spokesperson. It was a bit of a hard sell for Ruth at the time. There were no three-dimensional dolls that little girls were playing with at that scale. Um, But she persevered, and with her passion and with her hunch, we have the Barbie brand that's here today.
0: This hunch led Ruth to the maverick psychological consultant, Ernest Dichter. Dichter was one of the first researchers to define the term branding in the 20th century. Dichter strongly believed that there was a Freudian side to consumer
1: behavior. Through in-depth interviews with consumers, he had seemingly proven to companies that their marketing should be based around such hidden desires. Ivory soaps, for example, should be marketed as a more utilitarian or blue-collar soap to appeal to their base consumers. On the other hand, Chrysler cars needed a sexualized dimension to differentiate themselves from
0: the competition. Market research like this became one of the biggest legacies of 20th century business. Instead of proving to people why or how a product works, One just needed to show how much the product would change the consumer's life. It was all emotional appeal from here on out. In today's world, though, many consultants like Dictor
1: have been completely replaced by the consumers themselves. For example, Frito-Lay began allowing consumers on social media sites like Facebook to vote on new potential flavors. This allowed them to specialize in different markets, selling onion ring flavors on the west coast and cinnamon
0: flavors on the east coast. Consultant-based or not, market research defines the market in personal terms, and that made instinctual sense to Ruth, especially when considering marketing for Barbie. So she enlisted Dictor to prove that Barbie wasn't going to be unappealing to the market. Dichter conducted nearly 200 interviews with children and 45 with mothers. While it was true that mothers didn't like Barbie, the little girls were drawn in by the doll's maturity. Through
1: this research, Ruth developed a new sales pitch to draw mothers into the doll. Barbie wasn't just a toy, but an educational tool. That's why Barbie had different outfits and different roles. She could show girls the
0: many ways an adult woman could operate in the real world. In other words, Ruth would pitch Barbie as a role model. Here was Business Principle 8 in Emergence. Ruth was repositioning perceptions of her products. This was a thoroughly modern idea, and Ruth was
1: smart to enlist someone like Dictor, who was at the forefront of such marketing ideas. Through advertisements and sales pitches, a consumer's mind could be
0: changed. They just needed to hit the right buttons. So by 1959, Ruth Handler saw that Barbie was ready for sales. She devoted $125,000 of her million-dollar marketing budget to Barbie alone, a hefty investment for a single untested product. Beautiful Barbie, I'll make believe that I am you. you can tell it's Mandel. It's swell.
1: The doll made its debut at the toy fair. Each and every buyer at the fair passed on Barbie. Ruth panicked. The production line was going to back up. The company was going to look very foolish if this bet didn't pay off. It could stain their reputation for years. More importantly, she was heartbroken. Barbie had been her destiny, a product that was fully hers. Elliot commented, quote, I didn't think it would be successful, but she did. This was her dream. She did not cry often, but she cried because she had that heart. The doll was like a piece of art for her that held a piece of her
0: heart. To make matters worse, the spring of 1959 came with Barbara's announcement that she would be getting married straight out of high school. Although this wasn't far off from what Ruth had done, she didn't think her daughter was ready at only 18 years old. Everything seemed to be crashing down. Ruth may have finally gambled too much. Mattel
1: was hanging in the balance and all eyes were on her had barbie sunk the company the marketing budget was completely drained and
0: still sales were nearly non-existent but providence struck yet again and ruth's ideas of destiny seemed more accurate than ever before when summer months came and kids left school barbie sales picked up then they blew up just like the burp gun had before it school was out and it was finally time to beg parents for new and improved toys. By the end of
1: 1959, Mattel was producing 22 variations on the initial Barbie doll. The company was able to employ over 1,200 workers, and their five separate plants were condensed into one 250,000 square foot property in Hawthorne,
0: south of Los Angeles this later interview clip with ruth proves that even barbie's creator was blown away by the reaction to barbie i did not think this doll could ever be this huge i thought the barbie doll would always be successful i thought it would be a great success it's the degree of success and the length of time that is amazing mattel had officially become a behemoth of the industry Even more of Ruth's time was devoted to managing this growth. She said her line of work needed, quote, a willingness and a capacity to try to slot your private life into your total existence so that it interferes as little as possible with your business life, end quote.
1: What this really meant, though she couldn't see it yet, was that her growth of power was pushing her away from her children and opening up a vulnerability that would threaten to sink her grandest ambitions and maybe even land her in prison.
0: Now it's time for a quick break. Maud Cloth's mission is to serve and celebrate their community, inspire individual style, and empower women to be the best version of themselves. That's why their signature line of apparel is offered in a full-size range, from extra-extra-small to 4X. Mod cloth is the greatest. I just got a cute emerald green butterfly shirt
1: dress. It fits perfectly, and it even has pockets.
0: I'm getting ready for summer, so I got a retro halter top one-piece swimsuit with cherries. It looks great and I'm ready for the beach. And if you need a profesh refresh, nab summer-ready workwear at ModCloth. Look chic on the clock in cute blazers, stylish separates, and playful prints. And don't forget walkable heels or flats to finish your look. To get
1: 15% off your purchase of $100 or more, go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter code WOMEN at checkout. Hurry, this offer expires on September 1st, 2018. That's modcloth.com and enter code women at checkout for
0: 15% off your purchase of $100 or more. Now, let's get back to the story. For Ruth Handler, the question now shifted away from disruption. Once you have successfully disrupted, how do you take over as the dominant force in an industry? Ruth needed to lead Mattel to the top of the pack, but she was now faced with an important question that many corporations of postwar America now faced. How big should a company grow? Mattel's
1: general manager, Dave Mencken, suggested that Ruth take a few business classes at UCLA. When she sat down to read through the course material, Ruth described it as feeling like, quote, a person in a desert who found water end quote. By the end of the courses, she was even more oriented towards efficiency than before. And her first act was firing Mencken. She didn't need a general manager anymore. She could do it herself.
0: Now, the financial, production and engineering departments all reported directly to Ruth. She had consolidated power in a big way, just in time for Mattel's initial public offering in 1960. It sold 350,000 shares at $10 a share. Ruth also rigorously vetted Mattel hires.
1: She wanted generalists, not specialists, who could act on instincts like she did. She pushed salesmen to sell each and every toy on the
0: Mattel line, not just the popular ones. Under Ruth, Mattel crafted business terms and practices that would spread through the entire industry. The Toyline Production, or TLP, was a spreadsheet of every product, with their sales and revenue numbers, reviews, and marketing budgets. W Reports, or Weekly Sales and Shipping Reports, tracked every product, every week. Ruth had the entire production and sales history at her fingertips and had an intense knowledge of every item. Another toy breakthrough came in 1961
1: with the debut of Barbie's significant other, Ken, again named after Ruth's child. Her son enjoyed this fact even less than Barbara had before him. Yet the proof was in the pudding. Barbie was
0: a phenomenon. By 1962, 93% of girls between 5 and 12 recognized Barbie's name, and by 1963, Mattel had over $26 million in revenue propelled by Barbie. 3 years later, this would reach 180 million. Now, this is where a
1: principle emerged that didn't necessarily define Ruth's success in the long run. It was out of her wheelhouse, but it was a risk that appealed to her. That principle was diversification. Mattel had begun acquiring
0: Canadian and Chinese toy companies to spread the brand internationally. As Mattel joined the Fortune 500 in 1965, Ruth's desire became a lot simpler and less idealistic power. In her autobiography, she described her feelings as such You don't need things that people turn to, like drugs or soul searching. All that stuff is for people who are not having the kind of trips I was having. I was having power trips that were headier than any conceivable artificial stimulant could be.
1: In 1967, as Elliot was named CEO, Ruth threw off the empty title of executive vice president and officially became the president of Mattel. Their growth became exponential with the debut of Hot Wheels, a dual Jack Ryan-Elliott Handler creation, in 1968. By the mid-1970s, Hot Wheels was so big that if
0: it was its own company, it would have been second in size only to Mattel. However, at the start of 1970, Elliott and Ruth decided they needed a real financial advisor. They selected Seymour Rosenberg, who came from Lytton Industries, a huge conglomerate that grew to riches almost solely through acquisitions and diversification.
1: But Rosenberg bit back on his first day on the job. He told Ruth, quote, you won't do, you're a woman, you're Jewish, and your style is all wrong. If you were to deal with the investment community, you wouldn't create the right impression. To carry this company into the next stage of development,
0: You are simply the wrong person, end quote. Ruth was flabbergasted. She wanted to fire him, but knew it was too late. It would send a terrible message to the company and the industry at large. She lamented that, quote, in one stroke, a man had gained power over me in my own company by putting me down. I steered clear of him and left him to operate more or less on his own. She realized too late that Seymour Rosenberg
1: was a corporate raider, and that the success of Lytton Industries, his previous corporation, was built on the back of aggressive acquisitions. That's the corporate raider's goal, to acquire a large stake in another business, and then utilize shareholder votes to redirect the company in a direction
0: of their choosing. That direction, invariably, is whatever grows shareholder value the most, even if it's at the expense of old business. In other words, this strategy flew directly in the face of Ruth's fourth business principle of focusing on Mattel's strengths. In many ways, he was practicing just an early form of what has
1: now become venture capitalism. Investment groups buy into growing companies, betting that they can ride them to the top, or at least get them big and
0: juicy enough for an even bigger corporation to buy for a windfall profit. Modern behemoths like Uber and SpaceX wouldn't have ever flourished or even existed without venture capital to push them into growth cycles. At the time, it made sense for the handlers to seek growth. Mattel was a big name and they envisioned many possibilities for growth, especially in the entertainment market as a whole. What they saw too late was that they themselves were some of the riskiest elements of Mattel two business leaders without formal education or high-level financial connections. Rosenberg knew that if Mattel did diversify further, it would move the company even further out of their area of expertise. This meant more power would fall into his hands instead of Ruth's. Rosenberg
1: internally diversified Mattel, too, by splitting it into four main divisions. This gave Ruth over 16 vice-presidents to manage. Her interest faded from the inner bureaucracy. She expanded Mattel's entertainment holdings and moved into producing family films,
0: like Sounder. By the end of 1970, Ruth and Elliot decided they would try to buy a controlling stake in Ringling Brothers' circus company. This would be Mattel's big move into entertainment
1: timing was bad, though. On June 16, 1970, Ruth's cancer returned, malignant this time. She had to undergo a mastectomy. Ruth wrote about the experience, quote, I was unable to speak with authority. I lost the courage of my convictions, end
0: quote. This coincided with Barbara's inevitable divorce. Many of Ruth's deepest fears were coming true. It was only a matter of time before these troubles moved in on Mattel. Their diversification strategies began to backfire. The companies they had acquired outside
1: of the toy industry, including companies in playground equipment, audio, and plastics, had more problems than they were worth. The division leads within Mattel were competing with one another and tanking productivity. Even the hiring process lost its old edge, and Mattel's competitive advantage sank. Inventories began to back up in the warehouses.
0: However, as the Ringling Brothers deal approached, Mattel needed to keep Wall Street happy and make sure their rising stock prices remained strong. Here's where the strategy of bill and hold took over. This is a business tactic used to create an illusion of growth before that growth actually occurs. This can be a legitimate
1: tactic, though it always edges against a moral line. Revenue is recognized as received before products are actually given to buyers. Expenses get moved into later business quarters. Profit targets are designed to please shareholders. While using this tactic, Mattel even produced fake invoices and bills, and a second bill-and-hold set of financial records were crafted. Rosenberg steered this ship, but Ruth didn't speak up. However, she did know about it. This was
0: a betrayal of her values and business principles. And in 1972, everything began to come crashing down. Kinney Systems, that had recently acquired Warner Brothers, requested a merger with Mattel. However, Ruth grew suspicious that Rosenberg had arranged this deal with a friend at Kinney, angling to replace Ruth when the deal went through as president of Mattel. Ruth canceled the talks
1: and fired Rosenberg, By March 1972, Mattel was forced to admit operating losses for the first time. In June, 450,000 shares were dumped. Stock prices fell $4 in one day. The Ringling Brothers deal
0: slipped away. Now, Ruth was in deep with corporate sharks and shareholders that didn't match her old management style. Combined with a troubled personal life, Full of health problems, Ruth's control of Mattel eroded. Ruth Handler's company was turning
1: against her, and now a host of legal problems were mounting after she let financial advisor Rosenberg steer the ship for too long. As the loss of her business became a real possibility, Ruth was forced to confront her legacy. Without Mattel, what could
0: define her? At the beginning of 1973, Elliot and Ruth returned from vacation to discover that Mattel executive Art Speer had convened a board meeting without them. They no longer thought Ruth was able to guide Mattel. By February, Mattel was forced to announce that it had made misleading statements regarding its profits and was instead at a much higher loss than previously stated, over $32 million. Ruth and Elliot, as CEO and President,
1: had to accept the blame. In March, Art Speer took over as President. Although Ruth and Elliot were still called co-chairmen of the board, they were ushered out of any control. Shares, at this point,
0: were down to $5 from 16. Speer aggressively cut the product line, axing over 120 toys. By 1974, the SEC mounted an investigation into the company's finances. Art Speer pointed the blame at Ruth, and with her own company now aligned against her, she felt completely lost. But then opportunity arose in an unexpected
1: place, In 1975, Ruth approached prosthetics designer, Peyton Massey, to assist in building her a new prosthetic bra.
0: She had never been happy with the designs offered to women with mastectomies. She loved Massey's design. Lightning struck. It was time to get back into the disruption game. Ruth realized that the main flaw from the toy industry was present in this sector of the prosthetics industry too. Men had been designing these products thoughtlessly. It was time for a woman with personal experience with mastectomies to create the supplements.
1: Here was also where Ruth's vision for her ninth and final business principle was clarified. In her own words, quote, every product has to have a reason to be, end quote better prosthetics certainly had a role to fill. By the mid-1970s, more than two million women had undergone mastectomies. She
0: called the new prosthetic Nearly Me. As for the company, she would call it Ruthton, a combination of prosthetic designer Peyton's name and her own. She didn't really like the name, but at least it was finally her own she spearheaded the design of the radical new
1: prosthetic it was made of silicone fluid and the same foam that had once been used in mattel's tender love dolls by 1976 sales on nearly me began the slogan the best man-made
0: breasts are made by a woman unlike toys nearly me didn't sell itself ruth needed to be at the head of a grassroots campaign Initially distributed through Neiman Marcus, Ruth had to travel from city to city doing local press and telling her story. It was a much more personal experience than selling Barbies. Ruth priced the prosthetics reasonably, and if she kept up the groundwork and travel, was able to sell around $15,000 worth of Nearly Me in two or three days.
1: However, Nearly Me's profitability was threatened in 1978. Ruth was indicted on 10 counts of fraud due to the last days of her control of Mattel. She faced $57,000 in fines and 40 years
0: in prison. To avoid prison time, Ruth was forced to plead no contest. It was equivalent to a guilty plea, which made Ruth feel sick. Although she had agreed to the bill and hold scheme, she believed she had been used by both Seymour and Speer, who had just wanted her out of Mattel. Plus, the punishment of 500 hours of community service a year for four years would cut into the early business of marketing nearly me. However, she tirelessly devoted
1: herself to community service efforts and earned her freedom from probation a year early At 66 years of age, Ruth could return full-time to marketing and selling her breast prosthetics.
0: Ruthton became the new mission of her life. She worked harder than ever before. Nearly Me's success would never reach the profits of Mattel, but it meant something even deeper to Ruth. She had redeemed her business practices and built a company full of meaning.
1: With Ruthton up and running, family problems arrived on her doorstep, offering Ruth a chance to redeem herself for years of absentee parenting. In late 1991, Ken met with his parents and unveiled a sad truth. He had been diagnosed with AIDS. He feared that his mother wouldn't have the time to be there for him in his final
0: years. However, Ruth had changed. Her years of struggling with breast cancer made her truly empathetic of Ken's inner conflict. In 1992, she sold Ruthton, now called Nearly Me Technologies, to Spenko Medical Corporation. She had shepherded the company into becoming a reliable brand and trusted it to sell itself from here on out. Her gut instincts were right yet again. Nearly Me prosthetics are still sold today. Without a business to support,
1: Ruth devoted the next two years to caring for and spending time with Ken, until he passed away in 1994 at 50 years of age. Although her son was gone, this tragedy did manage to finally bring Ruth and Barbara back together. Ruth apologized to Barbara for years of strain and inattention. Barbara, in a later interview, said that, quote, Both of us decided we weren't going to get
0: at each other anymore, end quote. Finally, mother and daughter were friends. Ruth was also welcomed back into the Mattel fold, this time as an inspiration and icon. The new CEO, Jill Barad, saw Ruth as a personal hero. Barad knew that Barbie was the company's true legacy, and that Ruth was the reason for its success. Present-day Mattel PR understands the value Ruth created through Barbie.
1: In the 60s, when we were sending men to the moon, we had an astronaut Barbie, and we were out there saying to girls, yes, you can go to the moon if you want to go to the moon, unheard of at that time. So Barbie really has always been at the forefront of that culture and, frankly, of that fashion. Barad often told the story of meeting Ruth for the first time in the early 1990s. At the time, Barad was only the president of the Girl Dolls Division, Ruth pressed her to take over both the girl and boy divisions. By 1997, Barad was the CEO. Ruth would never be turned away from another Mattel event again.
0: Her legacy was spared from disgrace. At the turn of the 21st century, Ruth and Elliot's relationship remained as solid as ever. In the conclusion of her autobiography, ruth spoke about what made it such a productive pairing quote it has to do with respect sure we had love but more important i don't think we could ever have survived the life we had without mutual respect End quote.
1: the same could have been said for ruth's entire career the personal and professional were always intertwined despite what ruth may have thought along the way This is what made Ruth the queen of disruption. Every smaller principle that we've examined supported her act of breaking into industries that didn't want her. She learned everything by doing. She avoided waste
0: and maximized productivity. She always followed her gut when making sales, and she kept her growing businesses focused on their strengths. When she let Mattel slip out of this principle, She redeemed it by putting it back into practice with Ruthton. Ruth made sure her employees always felt personally connected to their companies and their respective missions. She made sure her product line had continuous value and visual appeal. And she repositioned expectations for her products, dragging the market into the future alongside her vision. Finally, Ruth's
1: best products filled true needs and desires in the market. She was a woman of the people, for the people.
0: Barbie,
1: you're beautiful. You make me feel. My doll is really real. Ruth's relentless pursuit of success and disruption nearly destroyed her. But by the end of her life, she had redeemed her relationships with her children, she had held together her marriage, and she had established herself as an icon and hero for both Mattel and
0: Ruthden, two incredibly different business successes. In 2002, her long battle against cancer took its toll. She began suffering from internal bleeding. She kept traveling for speaking events and supporting further developments in breast prosthetic technology, but her tireless work ethic began to slow. Finally, on April 27th, 2002, Elliot went to kiss Ruth goodnight, but she was already gone. In the last years of her life, Ruth often spoke to
1: aspiring business leaders and women breaking into the industry. She summed everything up in a characteristically efficient manner. Quote, I feel like I've lived three lives. In my first life, we did it our way. In my second life, we did it their way. And in my third life, I did it my way.
0: Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, spelled parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot
1: If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter
0: at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings.
1: Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Jack Bentel, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson.
0: When to Jump is not a ParCast podcast, but we do think you'll like it.
1: Before any great business leader built their legacy, first they had to
0: start working toward their dream. In the podcast, When to Jump, host Mike Lewis speaks with influential entrepreneurs, CEOs, politicians, and more about the journey they took to get where they are. Find When to Jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Just search when to jump.